Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. So, funnily enough, as soon as I picked up my iPad, a, um, a notification popped up that said that NASA have just announced that there's a possibility that they found alien life forms in our solar system. I don't, it's not a joke, honestly, that's what it just came up. So, who knows whether that'll work out to be anything. It turned, it's probably like, I don't know what it is, but anyway, just imagine an alien comes to your house, comes from Mars or wherever it is, and um, sees people in your house putting on silly hats, pulling small explosive devices, and then reading out messages, little unfunny things that sometimes people laugh at and sometimes they don't, before eating way too much food. What's going on? Christmas is happening. And these are the signs and the symbols to do with Christmas. Another one, in our house, this happens a lot. At the end of a meal, we take out a big cake in the shape of a caterpillar that is, uh, is called Colin. It has to be Colin, I prefer Colin. And uh, he's blazing away with all these different uh, candles going like crazy. And then everybody sings to one person the most sung song in the world, which is? Happy birthday to you. So in different parts of the world, there's all kinds of different things to do with uh, celebrations and uh, Christmas and Easter holidays, different signs and symbols. People have developed various ways of not just saying something, but also showing something and signs and gestures that mean different things to different people. Imagine a world without gestures and symbols. Imagine if the, you know, we didn't know what a handshake meant or a salute or um, you know, nobody uh, you know, kind of received flowers. Or if you got flowers, you were like, why are you giving me dead flowers? Why didn't you leave them where they were? Oh, it's because I love you. I've killed these flowers for you. And we've got all these symbolic objects and gestures and they, they communicate something beyond um, what you can see. There's a deeper level, there's a deeper meaning beyond it. And in the Bible too, God, when he wanted to express his, his, uh, his, who he was, to show people the kind of God that he was and how he could relate to them and connect to them as well as... Show, telling them, he also showed them various things symbolically. So you can see this all through the Bible. In the Old Testament, when God uh, wanted to show his love for Noah and his promise to all of creation, he didn't just say it, he put a rainbow in the sky as a sign as, of the promise. And when God wanted to express his love for Abraham and his promise for all people, he didn't just say it, he gave the sign of circumcision. And no doubt at that point Abraham said, couldn't I just have had a rainbow? And when God wanted to show Abraham what faith really looked like as a test, he said to him, I want you to take your son, your only son who you love, Isaac, and take him up the top of this mountain. And just at the, the moment, as the knife was poised, at that point, 
God provided a substitute. It's like as, as he was going up one side of the mountain, he couldn't see it, but coming up the other side of the mountain was the substitute. And it was a, a, it was a lamb which was coming up to the top of that mountain to be a substitute. It was a sign. One lamb was being substituted for one person. And when God wanted to demonstrate his holiness and how he wanted to connect with people, what he did was he had them build an elaborate tabernacle. And he said that this is like a pattern of what heaven looks like and how you're going to be able to relate to me. You go through all these different kind of places and stages, if you like. And then as a, as a, as a sign of how terrible and how serious sin is to God, he told his people that they were to pick the very best sheep from their flock, a lamb. And they were to bring it into the temple. The priest would lay his hands on it. And this was as a sign of, like a, to identify with it for the sins of the, all the people. And then they would kill this innocent animal. And sometimes they burnt it whole in the blood of the lamb. It would, it would, it would even, half of it would go on the altar. The other half would be sprinkled all over the people. And it sounds barbaric. It sounds crude and gruesome to us. But I promise you, you'd never leave a worship service saying, I just don't understand how much God hates sin. I don't, I don't know what forgiveness costs because you didn't just hear about it, you saw it. You, you had this graphic picture, you participated in it, you watched it, you smelled it, you were there. So God gives us signs and symbols because he loves us and he wants us to know it. He wants to show it. He doesn't just say it, he shows it. He demonstrates it because he knows this. The way we're made, because he made us, there are these signs and symbols that communicate on a far deeper level than just words. I don't know if there's a smell or maybe a meal, and it always just takes you back to a memory of, because God knows how strongly taste and smell are connected internally to us and how significant memories get locked in in that way. And in the Bible, we'll find it in the second book of the Bible called Exodus. We've just had a portion of it read to us by Catherine. One of the things that God told his people to always do was to celebrate the Passover supper. Now, lots of theologians shy away from the idea of this, but locked into this whole idea of the Passover, and it couldn't be more clear, was this idea of what is called a substitutionary atonement. A lamb was killed as a sacrifice so that a firstborn would not die. In Genesis chapter 2, as we said, with Abraham, one lamb was sacrificed for one person. At Passover in Exodus 12, a lamb was being sacrificed to save a family. In Leviticus, it's a lamb sacrificed for the nation. And then Jesus comes in the Gospels as the Lamb of God who sacrificed for everybody, for all people. That first Passover we just heard about was when the households of Israel, they'd been captive in Egypt, they'd been slaves, they'd had all kinds of genocide that had been taken place against them by, by the regime of Egypt at the time. So various generations had just been downtrodden and crushed, slave labor. But then, through this one act of the Passover, they were marked out as being under the protection of God, under the protection, the sign of the Lamb's blood, and they were saved. Those not under the blood were not saved. They were doomed to destruction. They were doomed to grief. And through this first Passover, they were saved twice. They were saved from death, and they were saved from slavery. But the destroyer who went over the land, notice this, he didn't look to see who was good. 
He didn't look for seeing who, who was good enough to be saved. He didn't look at anybody's good works to see if there was any good person there who'd done things that were worthy of them being saved. That wasn't what he was looking at at all. He only looked for the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. The head of the household was responsible to slaughter the lamb at twilight in the evening, taking care that none of its bones were broken. He was to apply some of the blood of the hyssop branch, with the hyssop branch, over the doorposts, the lintels. And some people have noticed that that makes like a sign of crosses over the door. And if you know the whole story, you'll recall that this wasn't the first thing that God did. God had sent all kinds of warnings, all kinds of plagues, time and time again. And his words kept coming through Moses to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. Let my people go so that they may worship me. But Pharaoh refused over and over and over. And the Bible says, interestingly, two things about that. It says sometimes it says that, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Other times it says Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the truth is, both things happened. Because the things that God was doing... Pharaoh hardened his heart against them. God was actually gracious and patient. He gave warnings, he gave signs over and over, getting worse and worse and compounding the problems to Pharaoh. But the signs just made Pharaoh more angry, more bitter, more closed off, more self-righteous, more proud and more stubborn. Have you ever met anybody like that? Ever been somebody like that? God says, let my people go, 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 over and over. Pharaoh says, no, 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 no. And then the final plague. If you don't do this, if you don't let God's people go, free to worship him, then death will come to every home in Egypt. And the firstborn son in every household will die in a night. And God has been patient, but Pharaoh is stubborn and proud and hard-hearted. And when I read the story, I say how often I've been like Pharaoh. We all need a heart change. God's word comes to pass, as it does. Death comes to the whole land of Egypt. Joel, sitting there, is my firstborn son. I can't imagine losing him. The, the morning cries split the night. People weeping in every household, unless, apart from, except the ones who had put their full faith in God, trusted in him and done what he'd said. That was the only difference. See, sometimes in the Bible, faith is like an inward, an invisible conviction. People can say, well, I've just got my own faith and it's a private faith and it's inside me and all those kind of things. And faith can be personal, but it's never meant to be private. It's supposed to change everything. And sometimes it's an inward thing, but sometimes it's an outward, visible action. You can tell who has faith by what they do. Like on Easter Sunday at some of our services, we're going to have baptisms this Sunday. And that's an outward sign of an inward change. People are saying, I want this new life. I believe I've received it by following Jesus Christ. And now I'm, I'm going to get into this water. It's like I'm going to die to the old life and I'm going to be raised again to a new life. And in the Exodus, God says something Really clearly, he says, demonstrate that you are putting your faith and obedience in me by taking a lamb without spot, without spot or blemish and bring it into your home for four days. 
A friend of ours years ago, when we lived in Devon, in the church there, she used to have little orphan lambs and bring them into the house. They make a mess. And she had a big, nice house. I dread to think what would happen if we brought a dog into our house, sorry, a lamb into our house. We've had puppies, and that's enough of a mess, but a lamb would really get me in trouble. But this is what they were told to do. You've got to bring the lamb into the house, in with the family, and just let it be in this little house for days. Because this lamb is going to be your lamb. This lamb is going to be your substitute for you and for your family. So bring it in the house. Get used to the lamb being in the house. Because it's, you need a substitute because the wages of sin is death and all have sinned. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, the Bible says. And every family needs to gather inside the house and in faith to slaughter that innocent, pure animal. And you go outside and you strike those doorposts so it's really clear. Painting the entrance to the house to show that we know, apart from the grace of God, if the judgment of God was to fall upon this house, we would all be done for. We die as sinners. But we're trusting in the grace of God. And there's an outward sign of that. We're putting the blood of this lamb over the door to put our trust in that to save us. And then God says, now, as death comes throughout the land, we're going to see which homes, in faith, had a substitute who died for their sins. Which homes are covered by the blood? Which homes are being judged? Because the people inside there have decided to be unrepentant and to hold on to their sin and their pride and rebellion and it will not pass over them. And every year since, God's people would gather and eat what's called the Seder meal. The, li- the word literally means the order because it's, it's like 14 specific different parts it's now evolved into over the years of the Passover meal. And the Jewish people celebrated this very week. And we saw a video earlier from a great organisation called Jews for Jesus and they could come and take you through all the little parts and tell you lots of things very interesting about it. I don't know all those things because I'm not in Jews for Jesus. I can't do that. I could make a few things up. It probably wouldn't work. But what I do know is you can read the details of how it started in Exodus. And actually it wasn't all that complicated then, right at the beginning. God gave very specific instructions. He just said, do this and don't do that and say this and don't say that. But, and what's happened is over the years, the Jewish people don't know and don't understand the, the symbolism behind it. Actually, so much of it was pointing towards Jesus and they didn't even see that. A great writer by the name of N.T. Wright talks about this and he says, at the heart of what we know about Jesus' death is the time of year at which it took place. It happened at Passover time and it seems clear this was deliberate on Jesus' part. He chose for his final and faithful symbolic confrontation with Jerusalem and the authorities the moment when all his fellow Jews were busy celebrating the exodus from Egypt and praying that God would do it again, only on a grander scale, what he'd done all those years before. Jesus chose Passover to do what had to be done and to suffer what had to be suffered. We don't need to propose exact matches for all the elements in the Exodus narrative and elements in Jesus' work and teaching. Indeed, to do so might miss the point. What matters, matters is that the whole Passover context made sense of the whole event that Jesus envisaged as he went to Jerusalem for that final visit. When Jesus wanted to explain to his followers what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory, a model, a metaphor, or any such thing. He gave them a meal. A Passover meal, or at least what they seem to have thought was a Passover meal, though it turned out to be significantly different. Instead of looking back 1,500 years or so to the great event of the exodus from Egypt, he turned the meal around so its primary, primary significance looked forward 
to what was going to happen the very next day. So as I say, there's all kinds of symbolism that's bound up in the Passover meal. If you look for it, you can see evidence it's pointing forward to Jesus. You drink four cups of wine. There's the cup of sanctification, then the cup of deliverance, then the cup of redemption, and finally the cup of praise. And in Luke 22, we read how at the Last Supper, Jesus said, I'm not going to drink that cup. He didn't drink it himself because he said, there's another cup that I've got to drink first. And he knew what cup that was. It's the one that made him back away in the garden when he was praying. Because it, it was the cup of the wrath of God against sin. And then finally, when he was dying on the cross, John tells us, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished and that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. And a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. They filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. And when Jesus had finished it, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. I'm going to come back to that. They had four pieces of unleavened bread, but they break the third matzah and they stripe it and they pierce it and then they give it to the kids to hide it away they wrap it in a white linen cloth this piece of bread and they they hide it away until the very end of the meal and then they bring it back out again and if you ask the rabbis why they do this they'll give various reasons but basically they'll say we don't really know why we do that but I think we know because Jesus is the bread of life and he said this is my body and they took him and they wrapped him in a white linen cloth and they put him away in a garden and he was there until he emerged victorious on Easter day as we're going to celebrate on Sunday and there's so much symbolism and prophecy it's all locked up all about being fulfilled Jesus being this Passover lamb who and it all points forward to him see these days actually among Jewish people the lamb is hardly mentioned in the Passover but at the time of Jesus, five days before the Passover was Selection Day, when the most spotless lamb would be brought into the temple and would remain there to be sacrificed in the city. What happened five days before the cross? We just had it, Palm Sunday. Jesus entered the city of, on Palm Sunday and they shouted, Hosanna, God saves. The day Jesus was crucified was the day of the Passover celebration. That Passover lamb was sacrificed in the temple at 3 p.m. as the priest blew a shofar, a ram's horn, and all the people would pause in silence and contemplate their sins and think about how God had saved them from their sins. Jesus was being crucified at exactly the same time and at 3 p.m. he died without any of his bones being broken, which was very unusual. He was the only one among those who had been crucified that day who didn't have his bones broken scripture said at 3 p.m. he said it is finished as we just heard and the ram's horn was blown and the bible says at that time the veil in the temple which separated out the holy of holies and people couldn't go through was torn this huge curtain was torn from top to bottom but there wasn't just one lamb dying that was like a symbolic one in the temple passover also required that a lamb be sacrificed for every family that could afford it so as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem at exactly the same time a group of shepherds from a place called Bethlehem whose job it was throughout the year to make sure that they had lambs that were available at the right time for Passover that's what they did in Bethlehem those ones that we sing about at Christmas they were in charge of those, of those Passover lambs they would bring those special lambs from where they'd been reared and driving, imagine thousands of lambs coming into the city at the same time as Jesus was coming into the city and they would be taken into the Jewish families 
homes to be like a pet for at least four days. They'd be treated like members of the family. And before sacrificing the lamb, the Jewish priest would ask, do you love this lamb? And if the family didn't say yes, they loved the lamb, no sacrifice. Does that remind you of anything? What about after the resurrection? If you remember the story, Jesus is walking with Peter who's betrayed him, who's messed up so badly. Three times he's denied him. Three times, what did Jesus say to him? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's who John the Baptist said when he saw him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is some of the reasons why the early Christians kept on celebrating Passover for centuries. Right up, they did it in their homes, very simply, just having a simple meal and remembering the Passover together. For hundreds of years, they did it right up until the time various Roman emperors stopped them celebrating in that way. And in the end, in 325 AD, an emperor called Constantine outlawed it and demanded that Easter be celebrated instead as a really nice blend of pagan and Christian practices. Do you remember, as I say, what John the Baptist said? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's saying Jesus is our Passover. He's the one who takes away our sins. He is the firstborn male without spot or blemish. And he's the only one who could be our substitute. He's come to die for us. And that literally means in our place to die for my sin. To shed his blood so that I will be covered by his blood. So that the faith that I put in his blood will save me from the judgment and the, the deserved wrath of God against the sin in my life. And so that the sting of death will pass over me so I don't have to fear it. In Mark 14 we read that this last supper happened on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's Passover. Now the Jews of Jesus' day, what had happened is the father of the household was responsible to make the arrangements. So as the leader of the family of disciples, they turned to Jesus and they asked Jesus, where do you want us to go and make preparations to eat the Passover? He tells them, go into the city, you're gonna see a man carrying a water jar. Now that would be really unusual because men didn't do that in those days. So it's easy to spot him. And then he is able to show them a room that's already prepared for them to be able to go and eat the Passover meal together. And now Jesus is going to have the Passover meal with them as they would expect at that time, but it's going to do some things in it that will be completely unexpected. It's completely going to change up all kinds of things that they did. Continuing the end of verse 17, so they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the temple, so, with, with the 12. So they had all the food already and they thought this is what they were going to do, just going to be a normal Passover meal. While they were reclining at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. <coughs> imagine, imagine that, you're eating a, a big family meal, everybody's having fun, the wine's pouring and everybody's enjoying themselves, having a nice time, clinking glasses, telling stories, few jokes. And then the father announces, I want you to know, I received a death threat in the post today. Somebody's gonna murder me, it's gonna be by the end of the week, and in fact, one of you here, wrote the note. Everybody'd be like, what are you talking about? Who would do such a thing? That's terrible. And then of course, the next thing you're gonna say is, not me, not me, that's what they do. Everybody does that, all the disciples in verse 19, one by one, they said, surely not I, not me, not me, I, I, I'm one of the good guys, Jesus. You can trust me, I wouldn't let you down. I'm one of the, you know, I'm for you, no problem. I'll never let you down. And we know the ironic thing is that Judas literally fulfilled that prophecy, that prediction, but also Jesus prophesied that night that every single one of the disciples would also fall away. 
In verse 27, they said, you'll all fall away. None of us want to hear that. We all want to believe the best about ourselves. But Jesus knows the worst about ourselves too. And when we protest our innocence, when we try and prove that we're one of the good guys, we miss the whole point of this meal. That actually, this is not a meal for perfect people. It's the perfect meal for sinners. And that doesn't minimise our sin. It just magnifies his love and his grace that his body is broken and his blood is shed for people like me who betrayed Jesus recently, who betrayed him and denied him and chickened out a bit last week and yesterday and maybe we'll do it again tomorrow. And then Jesus would recite the Passover blessing over the bread. Blessed are you, O Lord, ruler of the universe, who causes bread to come forth from the earth. And everybody's thinking, oh good, we're getting you know, all that weird stuff stopped now. We're just having the Passover meal. And then all the words and the actions and the symbols would just become familiar. They know this is what's happening. They've done this since they were boys. They've been raised with this meal. It's never changed. Nothing changes. And the host of the Passover would pass each member a piece of bread. And by taking the bread, what they were saying was, I'm taking part. I'm participating in this. I'm part of this fully. That's what they were doing. And they were participating in all of the history of all of the promises, of all the salvation, of all the Exodus stuff that had gone on. They were remembering God's power was needed to set them free. And so they were receiving these things as signs of that. Now, I'm reading this, and because I'm not Jewish... Because I haven't been celebrating the Passover my whole life, and probably most of you haven't, this next bit didn't blow my mind, but really it would do if you were one of those guys initially, because now Jesus totally departs from the script. And what Jesus is doing here, he's changing over 1,500 years worth of history at this point, because nobody messes with the Passover. You just say the words. But then Jesus starts messing with them as if he can. Nobody ever did this, but Jesus did it. And he said, with the bread, this is my body. And I just need to underline how staggering that would be for him to do that in the middle of the meal. And some people might think, well, you know, I like Jesus, he's, you know, he's a good moral teacher and he said some good things, he's a wise man and uh, you know what? That just reduces Jesus way down to somebody he is not. Because he said and did the kind of things that only God could and should do. And this just, he's saying in doing this, I'm fulfilling all that prophecy, all that stuff way back then, it was all about me. I'm the one who saves people. I'm the one who saved them at the Passover. I'm the one who saves people now. It's all about me and I'm here. So he takes the bread and he said, this is my body. And, and here's what I want you to remember. And you can say it when you give and receive the bread. In a moment, we're going to take communion at our tables. And I invite you to be a part of that and to, to do that at your tables and to help with that. And you get the choice. And I want you to think about it. Am I in? Don't just take it. Am I in? Am I receiving this? Because every time you take a piece of communion... Jesus is saying, this is my body. I want in. I want in in your life. Do you want him in your life? See, every time we take it, I'd encourage you to say the words as you, as, you, as you either say it to yourself or you give it to somebody else. I remember when I take the bread, Jesus said, this is my body. And I'm taking it and I'm saying, this is broken for me. This happened for me. 
He suffered and he died for me. In verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took that third piece of bread. He gave thanks and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat this. This is my body, which is given for you. And that's a very physical act, isn't it? Spiritual act, but a very physical act. Because what they're doing, Jesus, it says Jesus gave thanks to God the Father for the bread. The Greek word for give thanks is efkaristo. We get Eucharist from it. And he gave it them. And he didn't say, now think about the bread and analyse the bread and talk about the bread and discuss the bread. He said, get it in you. Take it in. Take my body. Take my life in your life. Draw everlasting life. Draw the God life into your ordinary life. I'll come in. In a moment, we're going to experience the Lord's Supper because that's how he intended this to be. That this would be an experience of ordinary people connecting with God and knowing what he's like by participating in him. And then he took the cup, and again, a very physical object and symbol, an ordinary Passover cup, probably made by a local craftsman. And he gave thanks, Efkaristo, again. He offered it to them, and they all drank from it. And again, they didn't analyse it, they didn't do an eight-week study on it. They drank it. And notice the key words, this is my blood poured out for you as it was going to be poured out on the cross the very next day and remember I said all of this was to show them what God was like because God doesn't just want to say it he wants to show it how does the bread and the wine how does the cup show what God was like well in his book it's a great book how the Irish saved civilization anybody Irish here okay. an author by the name of Thomas Cahill mentions two famous silver cups that were uncovered in the marshy bogs of Ireland. The first is the Gendistrup cauldron. It comes from a few centuries before Christ. Here it is. It's adorned with pictures of violent, angry warrior gods. One panel of the cup shows a, a god who's like a gigantic cook god who's holding squirming human beings and he's eating them to appease himself. The Ardagh, I don't know how you say this, the Ardar, I'm going to say, nobody's going to correct me, are they, Rita? The Ardar chalice is another superb example of craftsmanship, but this comes from a few hundred years after the good news of Jesus Christ had come to Ireland. And it depicts a radically, view, a radically different view of God, because now Jesus has come and these people have found out about him. And this was just a beautiful, but still plain cup, a cup of peace, designed to be used for the Lord's Supper. And as the worshipper would lift the cup to their lips, they were reminded that our God sacrifices himself for his people. If the band could come up now and get ready, we are going to prepare ourselves for communion and they're going to be playing as we do this. And in a moment, you're going to take the bread and drink the cup as he commanded. I encourage you just to take it and to break a little bit of bread off and actually don't just take your own piece because this is meant to be a shared thing that you actually pass it to somebody else and let them feed you so we're receiving it from somebody else as he commanded and then we'll take the, the, the blood in a moment the, the, the wine, the juice here actually John Calvin, a very famous Christian writer who lived about 500 years ago said our lives are like a cup with a lid on it even when God pours his love out all over it it doesn't matter if you've got the lid on the cup the lid's on tight but Calvin said, faith is like, all you're doing is lifting the lid off the cup. That's all you're doing. 
By faith, we say to God, I'm not trying to cover anything up in my life. There's no point anyway because you're God. I'm removing the lid of my own self, my own sin, my own self-will. Lord Jesus, I want you to pour your love on me, in me, fill me up. I'm ready to receive you now. So that's why. Pour in the wine. And then and you're saying, I want an open life, open to God, open to receive his grace, open. And the next thing is, Jesus then wants us to pour that love out to other people. It's not just about me. Jesus said, remember that commandment we started off with, I command you, just love one another. Love one another, love one another. Because at the Lord's table, we remember that life is, a, is way more than just about getting. It's about receiving a love that overflows to other people too. So just take a moment and pray and close your eyes. Have you asked, have you opened up your life like that? If you have, just open your heart to Jesus. If you, uh, if you've, if you've never become a Christian and given your life to Jesus, all you do when you take the communion is you basically say, I've sinned, but I want to receive that new life inside of me so I can live a different life and I receive that body and that blood. And if you have, as a Christian, already uh, done that, you've already offered your life to him, and then when you take the communion, again, you just say the same thing. You're saying, Lord, I've sinned, but I thank you that you forgive me and you restore me and you give me a fresh start and the signs of that your body's been broken and your blood's been shed for me and I receive that so in, in your own time and in just a moment I invite you to somebody at, the, at your table take the part of being the head of the household around that table for a minute if you like and just take the bread and break a piece off and then give it to somebody else and remember to say those words something like the body of Christ has been broken for you to pass the wine to. Let's just do that. The band are going to be playing and maybe singing. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org forward slash media.